You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, along with the associated websites the EV Focus, The Driven and uh, One Step Off The Grid. Uh, joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. David, um, I trust you are well. Giles, I'm well. I trust our listeners are well. A little bit of welcome rain in New South Wales uh, lately. We had hoped to have uh, a great guest on, but some technical issues have uh, prevented that. So... It's just you and I this week, Giles. <laughs> just freewheeling along, David. Just freewheeling along. Yes, absolutely. So we're going to um, have to... Yes, we're hoping to talk about um, South Australia, which is um, one of the um, really interesting uh, grids, I think, just in terms of the transformation. And even though many people in the energy community sort of know roughly what's going on there, I just think it's sort of certainly underappreciated by what's going out um, um, in the general public, and I think even some people in the energy industry sort of fail to sort of appreciate well, just the um, you know just the extent of what's of of, of what's happening there. And um, yes, anyway. Um, well, so Energy you, Connect, you know, has been an example of a project that actually seems to be getting built, as far as I can tell, and on time. Uh, there's a great video on the Electronet site of uh, consultation between one of the Electronet uh, project engineers and. Uh, and, and a very large wildlife park uh, showing how they've been able to work together. Uh, there are forecasts that Electronet's been considering of in- increased electricity demand, uh, or, um, which I guess there needs to be because at the end of the day, uh, South Australia at the moment is, you know, a very small state relative to New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland in particular in terms of its electricity demand, but still there's a lot to be learnt from it. Yeah, that's interesting too. And there's been some fascinating videos too about how those wires are being strung together with um, helicopters. And I think that's what the, um, the the new shift now would be actually be using drones to do to do these things. It's quite fascinating. And look, just on South Australia while we're there, and we're going to move to other states, um, New South Wales in particular. I think um, the um, the hydrogen plan um, that we talked to Tom Coots and Tonus about um, on this podcast a few weeks ago that got passed through Parliament, but rather bizarre set of circumstances. And I just guess it sort of underlines the upside down world of the energy um, the energy uh, industry in Australia at the moment, you actually had the Greens and the Liberals voting to sort of delay it and refer it to a committee, sort of tie it up for another few months. Um, and you, you had um, the support for the hydrogen proposal came from uh, One Nation and SA Best, which is, of course, the party founded by the noted anti-wind campaigner Nick Xenophon. And one thing the hydrogen plan will do, I'm, you know, assuming it succeeds, is probably sort of um, result in the development of gigawatts, gigawatts um, of more wind um, firms. So it's quite ironic that you had sort of the Greens and the Liberals trying to delay it, and you had um, SA Best and One Nation supporting Charles. it. I don't understand why the Greens wanted to delay it without wanting to take up too much of our listeners' time. Do you do you know the reason? Nope. <laughs> okay, let's move on. 
<laughs> okay. the Greens are a law under themselves. I'm, I, I think they're a wacko. The more I look at it, anyway, let's not go no, there. No, no, no. I don't think you should go there. No, but look, just in the topsy-turvy world, so we go back to New South Wales and we had the rather extraordinary scene of um, a Nationals MP, um, in this case Adam Marshall from the Northern Tablelands, who you may well know of. Um, I know him personally, or I have met him a couple of times. Yes, yeah, on. that's right. Yeah, no, look, just sort of. So the New South Wales government came out with its updated planning rules, and really, people have just been absolutely gobsmacked. And I guess that's sort of the big story of the week. Um, um, certainly, it sort of captured the interest of um, of the readers on Renew Economy this past week. Uh, updated guidelines. It's the wind guidelines, which I think has upset um, everybody. Um, the New South Wales government insists that it's basically, oh, it's just a draft, it's just a draft. The industry says, well, it might be a draft, but basically these rules have kind of been being discussed and played around with for months. We've warned them about the possibilities, and we're already seeing these rules being implemented actually in the planning process as they go through the panel reviews and things like that. And we've seen various wind farms um, already having to sort of cut many turbines out and basically it gives a free kick and um, just to go into the detail of it it's a new rule which says that um, there is a setback of two kilometers from any neighboring property if there is a dwelling or a proposed dwelling and what the industry fears is that it basically allows and they've seen this happen already it basically allows an objector to find a property, neighbouring property, put in a $5,000 application fee for some sort of new development that may not intend to do it and basically sort of stick it near the boundary and that forces the developer to um, sort of, you know, have to sort of scale back or amend dramatically their proposal. And when this proposal was then overlaid on a map of New South Wales, it basically showed the entire state and particularly the renewable energy zones which are actually designed to accommodate wind and solar are now deemed less suitable for wind farm development and basically hardly anywhere in the state, with the notable, notable and ironic exception of um, Angus Taylor's front door, um, is deemed um, um, desirable. So, um, you know, I think so it's... So, Giles, that's, that's the um, immediate uh, cause of conflict. But I think uh, what it really does and what Adam Marshall's actually done is to point to the bigger problem that the Department of Planning just doesn't seem to get it at all. Uh, and I think that this is a fault of the Minister, uh, Paul Scully, who, like all the Labor Ministers, hasn't been there long enough probably to uh, know which day of the week it is, but seems there seems to be no coordination, uh, and this would go back to the prior government as well, between the Department of Planning and Energy Co., uh, and the consumer trustee on AEMO's side. Now, actually, the consumer trustee and AEMO do uh, talk quite a lot, obviously, uh, but the Department of Planning just does seems to be on a different planet when it comes to the whole thing. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any consideration. Uh, you know, the EISs, I understand, take up to four years to complete. <laughs> you just If every wind farm that's proposed is going to take years and years to get its EIS through, New South Wales is just going to run out of electricity. Um, it's really as simple as that. It simply isn't good enough overall for the department. And the one of the many issues here is that the Department of Planning only looks at problems. They don't have any uh, indication, they don't have any remit to actually look at benefits uh, or the fact that the greatest amount of environmental damage will actually, in the end, be caused by climate change. Uh, as, um, and, and it's this just generally not giving a, um, a big enough... The planning department just really needs to... I suspect the EIS process 
needs to be heavily shaken up in for the scale of this change that's proposed. Having yeah. a map is actually a good idea. It's just the wrong map. <laughs> it's the wrong colour, basically. It's sort of, there should be a map that will say, yes, we'd love to have um, some of these wind farms and this is how you can go about it. Um, instead, it's basically a map that sort of says, no, we don't actually like the idea of wind farms in that, in that area, that area, that area, and that area. Um, anyway, so I mean, there's a sign of a bit of a backpedalling on Friday. Um, look, this has only just come to light before we came onto the podcast and they're sort of saying, oh, no, 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 that's not what we meant. That's not what we meant. But um, there's actually no signs of changes to the map itself. And Look, I'll make a couple of other observations about this. One is that um, that planning problem is probably hit, um, inherited, actually, from the previous coalition government. Um, the previous planning minister, Anthony Roberts, was not a big fan of renewables and particularly not a big fan of um, wind farms. I mean, he was the energy no, minister. No, Anthony Roberts, you know, I remember him speaking to the Clean Energy Conference and, and at a, years and years ago where he basically said, uh, with a big grin on his face, we're going to make it as hard as possible to build wind in New South Wales. I mean, I don't want to pick on individuals, but I mean, that the fact is, I think the Department of Planning has more or less, or it looks from the outside, that they've inherited this view. They don't want any renewable development. And contrast this with Western Australia, which has had that sort of, you know, sort of come hither moment um, after being told by all the miners and the big industries over there that they want clean electricity, both because of lower prices and green emissions, um, sort of low emissions, because they need to be competitive for all those reasons on the international market. And they're actually just sort of making it very much easier for wind farms and solar farms to get developed. I mean, some people you probably say they've gone too far. They're actually bypassing the whole sort of EPA, Environmental Protection Authority um, process. But it's a sign of we have to do this. We have to get moving let's help it get moving now you don't necessarily want to sweep all those um, reviews and approvals behind you but you've got to make it easier and it just shows the difference of a government that seems determined to achieve something and to do something and one that doesn't seem to have a clue what it's doing yes and of course west australia as you say had a reputation for years of being an incredibly difficult place to actually develop anything look the thing to avoid is to get into a conflict situation, uh, which unfortunately we've got into. Uh, this is not even a conflict situation between landowners <laughs> and what they actually want, uh, um, individual by individual. It's a conflict between two government departments. Uh, and that is something that the government can sort out. And if the ministers, Penny Sharp and... Uh, um, uh, Paul Scully, in particular, can't actually get together and work it out, then it needs the Premier to actually do something. I'm Look, I'm not critical of Labor. Anyone knows that as a general speaker. I'm, I just want I'm interested in issues. But I must say the performance around this, and look, it was a great, we had the review to start with that was uh, Penny Sharp, I suppose, commissioned, and Cameron O'Reilly did, uh, and, and it was a very good review. And in, um, said a lot of things that the previous government had done wrongly or could be improved on. And I agreed with most a lot of that. And most of the industry, I think, agreed with it. And yet, what do we end up with? Uh, a, a complete s snafu. Uh, yes. And not of good course, enough. Look, this has consequences too, David, and we'll get on to the next subject, which I guess um, it has consequences about the timing of the closure of Araring. 
which is owned by Origin. Um, and I guess indirectly, or maybe even directly, it sort of has implications for what's happening with Origin Energy. But before we get to um, the Brookfield build for Origin and some of the games being played behind the scenes there by various investors, and I know you've got something, and you've had something very strong to say about that on the pages of Renew Economy this week, but um, what's your feeling about where we're at with the Araring at the moment? I mean, we don't know where the discussions are at. We presume that if Origin's to keep it open, they'll probably have to they'll demand a hefty payment or some sort, but it, it seems to me that with all the delays in the other process, we haven't seen the results of the various auctions yet. We would have expected to have heard from them by now. Uh, we've seen the delay in the access rights um, tender. Um, we've seen sort of other issues. Um, well, firstly, uh, on the um, El Tessa auctions, um, they, they were going to be done quarterly all the time. This is for the wind and the solar part, never mind the storage. Uh, but actually, that's been pulled back to six monthly. So uh, it's we're not really due an update on that just yet on the second second set of those tenders. My understanding or uh, is, and I could be quite wrong about this when I say my understanding, someone who I think uh, I should listen to said to me that six gigawatts of uh, wind and solar can actually be connected in New South Wales. And under the consumer trustee, it's modelled to be connected. Uh, without requiring the new transmission to the REZs, which, as we've previously discussed, actually won't be built until 2028, for the most part, other than one line to the Hunter Valley. Uh, so uh, uh, there is scope, despite what Transgrid might say, to connect some stuff. Now, in the just that's tangential to, but if you do connect all that stuff, and we're going to get rooftop solar no matter what. And we're going to get more power coming from Queensland. Calide Sea is going to come back online. There are three gigawatts of wind in Queensland under construction. McIntyre Wind Farm, uh, a one gigawatt is, is going very well from what I can see at the moment. Um, uh, we're going to, uh, Project Energy Connect is going well, so we're going to get uh, power flowing from South Australia, another 800 megawatts. The point is there's plenty of stuff coming along to compete with Araring. Um, uh, the coal price cap that Araring benefits from, from at the moment is going to go away. Now, the people that um, um, uh, think the Brookfield um, uh, EIG bid is undervalued uh, for a variety, may have a, probably have a variety of reasons for thinking that, but one of them is that um, irrespective of any compensation from the New South Wales government, they believe that Araring is very profitable and will continue to be very profitable right up until 2032, and that that should be allowed for. And that's despite the fact that Grant Samuel uh, specifically said in its report that they didn't think it did add much value. Uh, and my point is that whilst at the moment Araring is very profitable, based on uh, baseload forward prices of $100 a megawatt hour, if you think those baseload prices are going to stay at that level, it'll continue to be profitable. But I think it's going to find it more and more difficult in about two or three years' time as this extra resource becomes available, and its midday operating will get uh, revenue will get squeezed more and more. The ramping will get tougher and tougher, uh, and in general, it's going to run into issues that mean that its current level of profits can't be maintained. And the original reason that uh, Frank Calabria and Origin decided to close it actually remains valid, albeit it might be a, been a year or two early and there may have been some tactical reasons for making that announcement as well as the underlying issue. 
Well, there you go. Now, what about that? what about Australian super's opposition to it? I mean, is there something more than just sort of we think there's more value here, or is there some sort of philosophical or ideological bent to it? I mean, for some reason, they seem to think that Origin can accelerate that transition, but they've shown no interest in actually doing so until now. So um, I've noticed that a couple of the um, NGOs have actually come out and sort of said, well, if our super really does believe that, then why don't they invest $30 billion? They've got the money um, and, and do what um, and do what Brookfield um, is proposing to do. But, um, of course, that wouldn't happen. Well, of course, Aussie Super is only is not the only uh, group, institution, that thinks that uh, uh, the bid is still too low. Valuing origin uh, and working out is, is, is a very difficult job. I mean, I used to do it for a living, more or less, uh, but I, even I don't think that I'm in a good position to do it right at this very minute. Where I, I don't, in the end, think the um, uh, undervaluation crowd really thinks that the energy business is undervalued. They think that the assumptions around uh, the oil price and the gas price, which drive the value of the LNG business, uh, are too low. For instance, Grant Samuel used a US $60 oil price. Uh, and I think, uh, and, and you could argue that that is uh, a low assumption. In fact, I, I would probably argue that myself. Um, uh, but I just don't think it affects the fundamental situation. And, 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 and for me, it's not so much that uh, the actual value, it's the really it's the likelihood of the earnings that origin is likely to make if the bid is knocked back and what will happen afterwards but i think the reality is that with aussie super uh, owning over 16 percent last time i read and with some other institutions uh, uh backing them uh it's likely almost certain that the bid will fail and then the question then turns to what will happen afterwards eig which is the uh, people that want to own the lng business have said that they will come back and make a bid for origin uh, off market with a pre-sale agreement of the energy business uh, to Brookfield. So that if that was to occur, what you would be left with as a listed company maybe would be the actual LNG business. Now, I don't think myself, despite, anyway, everyone's got their own views, but for me, the best value part of the LNG business has already passed because the reserves are already moving into decline mode that will be very slow to start with, but in about 10 years' time, uh, um, the reserves or the production will start to fall off more sharply. But that's my view. Everyone else ha has, um, everyone's entitled to their own view. I'm talking a lot, Giles. <laughs> that's okay. It's really interesting stuff, David. That's okay. Look, um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about New South Wales. Just made the observation that um, um, they ran out of spinning machines this week. Um, they've got four coal-fired generators. Got the biggest coal fleet in the uh, in the country. I think still just over eight gigawatts. Um, half of them, though, are sidelined, or nearly half of them are sidelined by various sort of long-term or sort of short-term repairs and maintenance. And so they actually got down to having only six units out of twelve um, available. Um, this week, and AEMO had to do what it's been doing for a while in South Australia, is actually sort of put out a directions call and actually order um, some spinning machines on because what they don't have at the moment is, apart from not having enough wind and solar to replace the coal-fired generators yet, they don't actually have enough system strength to um, substitute for the coal-fired generators, and of course that will come from synchronous condensers and 
probably one hopes um, a little bit more or a lot more battery storage. Um, so it's just interesting to see um, that the directions had to be made by um, AUMA had to come into the market and just will say, no, you make switch that damn machine on. Um, we need it for system strength. This is in the um, you know the the the, the most um, coal dependent state in the country. So um, I just thought that was interesting observation and um, another thing. Well, that, well, uh, well, well, coal gen is down for the very reason I said. Electricity prices. Uh, you do your maintenance now because there's so much surplus generation at lunchtime. You don't really need it. Electricity prices have been very low. What we've seen all this spring is what is going to happen over more and more of the year as the amount of solar and wind over the whole of the NIM continues to grow and as these interstate transmission connections are built and they will be built uh, then electricity price we're going to get more and more wind and solar driving the price more and more of the time uh, and eventually batteries are going to also undercut gas now this is that's where i think i differ most from nearly every other analyst in the market if we look at the uh, fine map that uh, Renew Economy uh, publishes uh, of uh, batteries and just look at those that have been constructed and those that are under construction, uh, there's already over three gigawatts of uh, battery power that we know will be available across the NEM and quite a lot more in West Australia uh, uh, by 2025. And, uh, Blind Freddy can see that there's going to be lots and lots more battery announcements made over the next couple of years, despite the fact that battery costs are higher than we would have said 18 months ago. Uh, and as a result, we're going to get more and more batteries into the system. As they're built, they can, one, provide system services. Uh, AEMO could get off, do some more work and show how uh, grid-forming uh, inverters with virtual synchronous machines can work together because that's where the question mark still seems to be. We know they work individually brilliantly. That's been proved now, and, uh, but we need to show that they can work in a big system together. Uh, I don't think there'll be an issue with that, but AEMO needs to be convinced. Uh, and at that point, we won't need any spinning reserves hardly. And uh, as batteries, more and more batteries are built, they will start competing with themselves and as soon as they do that, um, they'll be able to undercut gas. We know that batteries are going, to, as far, no matter how many batteries are built, more solar is going to be built, right? For every mm. gigawatt of batteries, we're going to get two or three gigawatts of solar. So this means that there's going to be a bigger and bigger problem at lunchtime for at least the next three or four years, and someone's going to have to suffer for that. Someone's going to be switched off. But the other consequence is going to be that electricity prices in the middle of the day are going to be very low, once the battery's installed, you only need to cover your round-trip efficiency, nocently, which is next to nothing, you know, like 10%. And so you can, uh, you really only need $20 a megawatt hour margin between buy and sell uh, to operate your battery at a positive uh, variable contribution, whereas gas is still going to need, you know, $100. So batteries are incredibly capable of undercutting gas if, if the battery operators choose to do so. Speaking of battery people, David, um, Tesla came out um, this week. Well, we actually sort of revealed this a couple of months ago that they were interested in getting a, 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 um, a, a full um, energy li retail license in Australia. Now they're doing so. Um, that's now being sort of formally released by the Australian Energy Regulator. Um, they're looking for Victoria, South Australia, New South Wales, Queensland, Tasmania. Um, they've been g going down the same path in Texas, um, in the UK. Initially, this will follow a similar model. Basically, if you have a Tesla car, if you've got a Tesla battery in your house, then you'll be eligible to apply. They kind of see it as one massive you know, virtual power plant. They kind of see it as an offset to the load that they need. 
um, for their supercharging network. Um, they've got 150,000 customers in, or people who own Tesla stuff in Australia. Um, they say they want to disrupt the um, incumbent um, utilities. Um, how much of a threat are they? I really don't know. I think people, uh, <laughs> the record of Tesla is varied, let's face it, or of Elon Musk. Uh, um, some well, give them credit. Are... They've made they've, they've made really good cars, which are the best selling in the world, and they've made pretty good batteries, which are changing the nature of the electricity system. So, yes, th there are promises and non-deliverables, but they have changed stuff. Uh, I quite agree with that. Uh, I quite agree with that. Uh, I have a Tesla Power Wall, and it works very well. And the software that goes with it works very well. No criticism whatsoever. However, electricity retailing is a tough business, uh, in my experience. Generally, the first thing you need is lots and lots of customers. Also, anyway, let's let's just leave it at that. I don't know. <laughs> Okay, another one that I'm going to throw at you now. I didn't actually, and like the Tesla one, I didn't warn you beforehand because we weren't supposed to be talking to each other for so long. Um, offshore wind. Um, we've seen a lot of projects abandoned overseas because some tenders that were held three or four years ago were no longer, um, well, the, the, the people building them couldn't meet the price because the price of offshore wind has jumped up an awful lot since because of all the different supply constraints we've seen around the world, COVID-19, Russia invading Ukraine, plus inflation. That alone has probably added 30% to the costs, the capital costs of um, offshore wind farms. UK has tried to address that situation by jacking up what's known as the strike price for offshore wind. But what really struck me there, David, and I understand why they did that, was just some of the prices that they've got there now for like um, um, ground, or, you know, um, um, bottom mounted um, offshore wind, I think is now at about $150, $160 Australian dollars a megawatt hour. Floating offshore wind, the strike price in the UK, and they've already got some of these, is like $350 a megawatt hour. I mean, that wouldn't just, that just doesn't work if that's translated to Australia, surely. No, it certainly doesn't. And the first thing you'll do is have the pro-nuclear crowd saying, well, you know, let's put nuclear in. Uh, For that price, uh, yes. Which, which, which is an even bigger laugh. But I have long said, uh, I've looked at offshore wind. I accept that the costs will come down again. I think the cost inflation that we're seeing around the world is temporary to st um, uh, and eventually learning rate effects will reassert themselves. But I have long said that I do not see there is much need for really for offshore wind in Australia. We have plenty <laughs> and, of capability. And, and, unless you've got the New South Wales planning drawing a big map saying no wind farms here, please. Well, uh, I don't even Sorry. think Sorry. I, I would rather, we, as New South, speaking as a New South Welshman, I would rather import the electricity from Queensland and South Australia uh, uh, than... Um, build very exp ridiculously expensive uh, offshore wind. And I have long thought that floating offshore wind is a very interesting technology that is completely unsuitable for prime time. It's really not large-scale commercially developed around the world. Uh, and it's ridiculous when we've got this great onshore wind resource and heaps of relatively cheap land, no matter what anyone says, and farmers that are willing to negotiate to have wind turbines on their on their farm and a well-developed industry that we want it's 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 like hydrogen right it's it's for everyone that isn't just prepared to settle for um you know meat and three veggies if i can put it that way uh we can we can eat well we can eat comfortably we can do a good job with the onshore resource in australia and be globally competitive uh 
um, if we if we want to go into offshore wind, we won't be globally competitive. We'll just be mm-hmm. another me too person. Uh, and I think it's ridiculous. One more thing that's not in the menu, and you're probably not prepared for this either. Um, Andrew Forrest has announced this week that um, he's creating his own sort of asset management. Um, Macquarie, no, not Macquarie, um, Fortescue Capital is going to be based in, in New York. I've um, got a couple of private and, um, equity dudes up there basically charged with raising heaps of money, like presumably you know billions or tens of billions, to sort of co-invest in their grand green hydrogen plans. Um, why is he doing this, and will he be able to? I've got no idea why Andrew Forrest does what Andrew Forrest does. I, I just think of him as a junior burger in the electricity industry in Australia. And I can't, um, but he'll, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, he could just make his wind farms, you know, why isn't your Angular wind farm actually starting here in New South Wales? I mean, it has got its EIS, but it's months late. Uh, he's behind on what he's doing in Queensland. Uh, you know, uh, let's. Uh, uh, he doesn't, but he lives in. He's like Elon Musk. He live, and I'm not going to waste any water. He lives in a different world to the one I live in. The one I live in, you learn to walk before you crawl, before you walk, and walk before you run. But he, he just goes straight into, you know, moonshots. Moonshots. Well, it's interesting. I still sort of think that that sort of uh, that moonshotting is actually quite sort of valuable because um, you sort of never know quite where you land, and um, you're quite surprised um, what you can actually achieve in the meantime. So um, I'm not too sure whether he can actually deliver what he says he will deliver, but I certainly like his style, and I actually quite like the message that he's delivering with people because it's the one it comes up in the Brookfield bid too. I mean, basically, he's been going out there. Um, you know, with this thing saying, guys, wake up, you know, we are crashing towards 1.5 degrees. It's actually going to be really bad. We're going to go surging past it. So we've got to do something. And I just think that realisation is just not really dawned on people yet, whether that be well, sort of I politicians. agree with that, Charles. Yes, yeah. And and so I think it's good when you've got, you know, Australia's second richest person actually saying that in a loud and um, loud way. Anyway. And we've got Mike Cannon-Brooks uh, saying that... Uh, uh, you know, and, and, and a lot of people actually do think that, but there are groups that don't. And I know you're a moonshot dreamer. I mean, you've started uh, three websites uh, and a number of podcasts. So um, I'm all for dreaming big and trying to make something happen. But uh, but I also think if you have to take something on, you have to make a success of it. And I'd like to see CWP actually uh, uh, be a success, uh, which I, at the moment I just feel it, it's falling between the cracks a little bit or that's the way it looks from the outside. And for those who are not familiar with that acronym, that's CWP, which is um, the renewable energy company bought by Andrew Forrest and they're part of his Squadron Energy. David, we have been freewheeling for nearly half an hour now, which wasn't our plan, but um, I hope it's worked out okay for our listeners. I hope they've enjoyed it. Um, It's been a great discussion. Um, So um, thank you very much. Um, I think we should probably sign off now. What do you reckon? I think we should say thanks once again to our sponsors. Yes, actually, Evergen and Pylon. Um, thanks for everyone listening out there. Um, thanks for all our guests. Sorry we didn't manage to sort of hook our special guests up for today, but we'll have another crack at it in a couple of weeks, um, and we have lots of um, other people lined up um, in the lead-up to Christmas. So um, thanks for listening. Do check out our other podcasts. Uh, Giles, um, just on that topic, uh, I advise all our listeners that the big event I'm anxiously looking forward to is the Draft 2024 ISP Uh, which is released a couple of days before Christmas, Uh, whether it's going to represent a Christmas present or uh, one of the bad fairies' revenge, uh, we've got to see, (laughs) but I'm looking forward to it. Very good. Um, as I'll say, just check out some of our other um, podcasts. Um, we've got really good um, interviews on uh, Solar Insiders, um, 
with one of the people associated with SunDrive, which is the innovative solar um, Australian solar technology, and also the Switched On podcast. Um, and Delaney has been doing some fantastic interviews. The most recent one was um, with the. Um, uh, uh, from Ireland, uh, just looking at sort of distributed energy resources, community energy, res- community energy resources, and it's fast- fascinating. And, and, and those podcasts have just been, you know, really quite thrilling, quite engaging. So do check them out. And um, we'll be back again this time, well, sometime next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.